You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, episode number 33, How to Make the Right Portfolio Decision, an interview with Andreas Sashegi. Welcome to the Effective Statistician with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, the weekly podcast for statisticians in the health sector designed to improve your leadership skills, widen your business acumen and enhance your efficiency. And here are some exciting news I have for you. I'm creating an online course together with a colleague from the US that you will learn about in two weeks in an episode where we will talk about leadership skills. And this online course will also be about improving your leadership skills as a statistician, even if you have no direct reports. If you want to learn more about it and keep up to date, register your interest on our homepage that we have created exactly for that at theeffectivestatistician.com slash course. So just leave your email address there and then you will be notified when there's any updates regarding this course. We will create the course um, and it will start um, about early next year um, and you will learn more about it in the upcoming episodes. In today's episode, we have also something that has a little bit to do with leadership. Uh, it's about making the right portfolio decisions. And for that, I have a very, very dear friend, Andrea Sashegi, who is an expert in this area and has worked as a statistician with, um, on these kind of uh, decisions. And um, I think that will be quite interesting for you to he hear about, even if you are not working on these kind of things, because there's lots of learnings for other situations as well. This podcast is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. So join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the special interest groups, the video on demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars and much, much more. Just visit the PSI website now at psiweb.org and become a PSI member. Just one last note before we get started with the episode. I had some technical problems with recording the episode, so we used some alternative tool to record the episode. The quali audio quality is not that great, but I can promise that the content quality is really, really good. So please stay tuned. Hi, this is another episode of the Effective Statistician, this time with Alexander Schacht only, without my co-host Benjamin Pieske, who is on his well-deserved vacation. And today I'm with a good friend and uh, colleague, uh, Andreas Sashegi. Hi, Andreas, how are you doing? Hello, Alexander, very well, and yourself? I'm very, very good. So today we use a little bit of a different technology. I hope that um, isn't uh, causing too much problems with the audio. Um, but anyway, I'm pretty sure that the content will be amazing. So stay tuned. So um, Andreas has a very, very long history working um, at Illa Lilly, and he worked in kind of the different classical areas where a clinical 
statistician in the drug development can work. But today we'll not, not talk so much about this, but more about a special kind of career steps that, that he made uh, some time ago. But before we go into this kind of episode, uh, maybe Andreas, you can introduce yourself a little bit. Sure, thanks, um, Alexander. So I am uh, a senior research scientist in statistics at Eli Lilly and Company. I've been with the company for over 20 years, spending uh, most of that time in clinical drug development, specifically late phase development, uh, but also spending uh, six years of that time uh, in our decision sciences organization. Yep. And this is exactly what we will talk about today. So um, decision science, what is that actually? I would define decision sciences as uh, the collection of methodological as well as psychological principles involved in rational decision making. So, uh, so that's two components there then. On the one hand, it involves technical and I will say often statistical elements um, in terms of the synthesis and logical interpretation of information that's relevant to a decision. And uh, further to that, I will say that the proper accounting for uncertainty, for instance, is a key component in that process. But beyond the technical aspects, decision sciences also recognizes the impact of psychological factors in decision making such as the fundamental motivations of the decision maker, conscious and unconscious biases, cognitive traps, and so forth. And it accounts for these in analyses to support a decision and in developing recommendations for a decision maker. So um, if we talk about decisions, what is then actually, um, you know, what kind of decisions are we actually then talking about? Um, we are typically talking about decisions uh, regarding a clinical development plan. That's one example. So, for instance, uh, teams have to decide um, when preparing for the next stage of development what kind of uh, trial to run, um, what questions they will answer, what alternative options they have, and uh, the trade-offs that they consider in decisions like that um, are typically related to um, to timelines as well as costs, probability of success, and the value of those uh, of those decisions. So, for instance, uh, should you run a smaller or a larger trial, which has, of course, cost and time implications? What will be the value of the data generated from such a study? Uh, is the uh, added benefit of a larger, more robust trial? Uh, worth the uh, trade-off required in terms of additional time and expense. So around clinical development plans, there are decisions like there are you know typical de uh, the typical decisions that are required um, require uh, thoughtful analyses in terms of the trade-offs on these various metrics that I've described. Okay. The second kind of decision at a at a portfolio level would involve, um, for instance, investment decisions in one compound versus another if balancing uh, really a portfolio of assets when, um, you know, when there are opportunities um, uh, for, for multiple compounds to be developed further but limited research and development 
funds dictate that only a limited number of such opportunities can be supported. And the trade-off considerations also at the portfolio level are then again similar as at the compound level. Yeah, so then it would be more kind of evaluating different strategies on a portfolio level rather than on a individual compound level. That's correct. And the fundamental considerations, however, are largely similar. And where, and where do you get all the data for all these kind of different things? What are the data sources that would typically be used? Um, the data sources are varied. Uh, so they come some of the uh, some of the um, uh, information the data that's needed to inform decisions come from other functions like project management which can inform for instance uh, the costs associated with a particular development plan the timelines associated with a, devel a development plan uh, previous da data generated on the compound in terms of efficacy and safety can inform things like quantitative measures of the likelihood of success of a particular trial or clinical development uh, uh, plan. And, um, and then uh, finally, uh, uh, finance can weigh in on the projected value that a particular uh, data package, should a particular trial be positive, can deliver. So various functions come together to deliver the, uh, the information needed for a, for a comprehensive decision analysis. Okay. Some of it, some of it uh, admittedly involves um, educated guesses. There's a lot of uncertainty that one has to deal with, and that too is, is very much um, a central element of, of decision analysis. And I think it's pretty easy for a clinical statistician to come up with a, you know, standard error or standard deviation around an estimate for the efficacy if you already have some kind of phase two data or something like this, or if you have some, some maybe comparator data. Um, how do you come up with something like this for kind of, you know, the predicted value of, of, a, of a drug or something like this? Yeah, that is um, that is a um, uh, arguably a more challenging uh, calculation. It involves uh, assumptions. It involves a lot of uh, market research. Not all of that research is quantitative. Um, uh, there are there are financial models, um, forecasting models um, that are leveraged to establish quantitative values of measure. And, um, and those models admittedly have been criticized for being, uh, in many cases, uh, inaccurate. Um, of all the metrics that we've discussed, uh, those being, again, probability of technical success, timelines, cost, and financial return, the financial return is arguably the most uh, difficult to assess accurately and, uh, and, and for that reason can be taken into account in a decision analysis in um, uh, um, you know in, in 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 more of a directional or a discrete manner as opposed to a specific uh, quantitative uh, value, we just have to recognize the limitations that we have in in estimates that our other functional experts provide and uh, appropriately reflect the uncertainty in those uh, uh, those uh, estimates. Mm -hmm. uh, as an example, um, perhaps less so at a compound level, but if, if trying to balance um, 
let's say, cost and value across a number of compounds in an entire portfolio, one might rather prefer to categorize value into three discrete groups, high, moderate, and low, versus using specific numerical estimates of net present value for each. Okay, okay. Um... So, so that I think describes very nicely kind of the, the place of, uh, of data science. Um, now you have been uh, working more on the clinical side before you joined that group. So, so what was kind of your, your thinking when you entered that group? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my thinking was, um, uh, certainly that the uh, the technical and methodolo methodological skill set that's needed to succeed in the decision sciences role, um, I thought that that skill set comes naturally to me as a statistician. And in many ways, uh, that was true. But the, uh, the so-called softer skills, for example, how to lead a team through a decision analysis, how to effectively interact with a challenging decision maker, how to influence a decision board who may have significant biases to overcome. Those were the kinds of challenges that were much more difficult for me uh, to acquire. Um, beyond that, stepping in to consult with a team facing um, a tough decision, I found uh, to be much more difficult um, than, than I thought. From the perspective of uh, you know, the volume of background information, that's needed in order to understand the problem well enough to be able to consult effectively. Um, in working with the team and in, in, in presenting a recommendation, for instance, to a governance committee too, my impression was that um, it's very difficult to establish credibility because you're viewed as an outsider. You're viewed as a consultant coming in to analyze a situation and to provide a recommendation. And there is, uh, I will say, in, in some cases, even a certain antagonism or at least a certain suspicion that's brought towards one as a consultant. Um, and, and to establish credibility in that context is, is harder than I thought it would be. Okay. And so can you give an example of what kind of um, misperceptions people had about uh, your biases. <laughs> I, I don't know necessarily that uh, there were uh, uh, preconceived notions about um, about my um, my biases. I think there was more the sense that um, that it was. Uh, it was not so easy to accept the recommendations that I was sometimes making, uh, again, because of, of this perception that I really didn't understand uh, the problem well enough or understand the okay. context well enough. And part of that was also, however, driven, I would say, by the individual motivations of, of the, um, you know, of the committee being presented to. So for an, as an example, okay. When presenting the, um, you know, uh, when presenting on the current status of the, of a, a portfolio of drug compounds, there are going to be some features that are attractive and some features where the recommendation will be to take some kind of intervention because of, um, you know, some imbalance uh, uh, or some suboptimality that exists within that portfolio. The compounds 
that are affected by you know the compounds where a recommendation is being made to make a certain change um, um, are represented you know in the decision yep. committee by by representatives vice presidents responsible for those compounds when it's a difficult message to accept when somebody makes a recommendation for a change that you as the vice president for that compound in question may not agree with, then it's a very easy and natural reaction to say this person doesn't really know what he or she is talking about because there are other, there's additional context about this compound that the individual doesn't understand because the individual isn't the expert on the compound. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that kind of dynamic, one has to be aware that uh, those that 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 those kinds of biases, that that perhaps a sense of antagonism is naturally uh, present in in an interaction like that. Yeah. One of the best pieces of advice I received from a senior executive uh, within my organization is that when I present to a committee uh, to a group of stakeholders about a portfolio, always remember that you're, there are winners and losers in that group, um, given the data that you're presenting, and you have to be sensitive to them all. Um, and the message has to be delivered in a way that, uh, that people can accept it, even those for whom it will be challenging to hear. Sensitive to all. So I can understand that it's kind of, you need to be sensitive to those that represent molecules that might be cut. Um, and where, you know, maybe these, even with, you know, decision might be to stop the uh, development um, altogether, but in which way sensitive to, to the winners, so to say? Well, the winners are the ones that are, that are of course, easy, easy to, uh, um, to, to, to deal with. Um, I think portfolio management is, is always a question of, of balance. Um, what is um, uh, and in a portfolio by nature is is, is always in flux. Uh, the individuals who may be winning in in a, you know at a, in a certain point in time uh, because uh, portfolio decisions um, or or I, I will say the movement in the portfolio has played out in such a way that particular therapeutic areas are looking very good. Those those uh, you know individuals responsible for those areas can't then just sit back and relax and say our job is done. Uh, we have we have contributed to a healthy portfolio balance and don't need to do anymore. It requires active management on the part of all stakeholders throughout, and equally so those uh, uh, you know responsible for parts of the portfolio where some uh, critical intervention is required in order to optimize the portfolio again are also simply doing their job to achieve uh, to achieve that uh, that optimal status. Uh, ultimately, all stakeholders are working towards that. Uh, but in okay. any given, you know, in, in any given point in time, I think that sensitivity, particularly to those uh, to whom challenging messages are directed, is clearly more important. So you overcome these kind of challenges that, that you described earlier in kind of managing these groups, presenting it well. Um, what were kind of you know, the most helpful techniques that you use to, to manage that? Uh, there are, there certainly are uh, techniques around presentation skills and, um, 
um, and knowing your audience, knowing I mean, one of the most important things is knowing who is in the room when you're making a presentation, making a recommendation, understanding who is in the room, what their roles are, and what their individual motivations and needs are. That has been one of the most helpful um, uh, recognitions for me, understanding what everyone's needs are, and as much as possible, again, being sensitive to those needs with, mm -hmm. within the bounds that are possible. That's one thing. The other thing that is really helpful um, is uh, and requires a lot of effort is understanding the context very well. If uh, consulting with the team and providing a recommendation to team leadership about a particular development, understanding the context of the molecule in question very well is critically important. When presenting to a governance committee on a portfolio question, really knowing that portfolio very well and even knowing details about individual compounds within that portfolio is critically important. Uh, I have found, uh, made the profound experience that the degree of nervousness I have getting up in front of a committee is very directly correlated to how well I understand the subject matter, how well I understand what, not only what I'm talking about, but also the broader context within which I'm making the, the presentation. So that if somebody asks me about some detail that uh, I don't have to say, uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't know that. Uh, so, so a depth of understanding coupled with an understanding of the needs of the listeners uh, is, uh, I think, are the two pieces that are most critical. So did you rehearse these kind of things beforehand? So, so if you had a really high-stake presentation? Um, I, I did rehearse uh, presentations, um, but that can also be a trap, I found. Uh, initially, early in my career in decision sciences, I rehearsed uh, a great deal uh, to the point where I had a very polished speech almost uh, that I could deliver um, um, that sounded very good, that sounded logical um, and, 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 and flawless. But if I was asked a question that was a little bit off topic, uh, I, I, I felt uh, uneasy and uncomfortable and often unable to answer adequately very quickly. Mm. So I have found that in, in terms of preparing for an important stakeholder meeting or governance presentation, it was actually more important to spend time not so much on rehearsing the actual presentation and trying to almost memorize the words. It was much more important to know the context, know the content as well as the context very well. The individual, the specific words on the day will come and the confidence will come as well. So, you know, later on in, in, in more recent times, I've spent much less time on trying to um, trying to focus on 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 specific details of the delivery and more time on simply focusing on on the actual content and the message. Yeah. And preparing really having the audience in mind and maybe for foreseeing questions that they uh, would come from them. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So given these kind of experiences, I see a lot of kind of similarities actually with, you know, a statistician in, uh, in clinical development. Um, maybe sometimes the stakes are not as high <laughs> as, as uh, at a portfolio level, um, but 
where would you see the biggest differences in terms of um, your role as a statistician in decision science um, rather than in, in clinical development? I would say that clinical development is is much more focused on trial design and, for instance, statistical inference for the purpose of treatment effect estimation and less so on comprehensive analysis of a set of data to drive a logical choice. Um, the, some of the broad uh, uh, tools and techniques required for both kinds of activities are similar, um, but the, the objectives are different and, and, and the specific uh, applications are different. Nonetheless, uh, an important area of overlap lies in the development of clinical plans when teams face the choice of which of, let's say, two or more potential plans to move forward with. In making that choice, the clinical development statistician is very much a central figure, and in that instance is, in fact, helping the team make an important decision. So that would be an area of overlap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you actually then went back from uh, decision science back into uh, uh, clinical development now. Um, how has your experience at decision science kind of shaped how you do your job now? That's a good question. Um, when working as part of a team now, I am uh, much more aware of the motivations and also the biases, whether conscious or unconscious, that team members have toward their compound. Now, while um, the kind of passion and commitment that, that I see most team members have to, to you know, the project they're working on is very important uh, to a degree, it can also negatively impact objectivity. So as an example, I try to remind team members when, uh, um, you know, when needed that when preparing for a governance visit to request funding for a particular project, let's say, the primary objective of that governance committee is to make the decision that is best for the portfolio, which may not necessarily be best for the team's compound. And I have been in a situation, just to give an example, where, um, where the medical leadership of a compound has strongly advocated for a particular development plan that really had a very weak business case with respect to opportunities on other compounds that the governance committee uh, was interested in supporting. It was clear to me that um, from the compounds perspective, starting the clinical trial that was being proposed would have made sense. It would have offered the opportunity for generating positive data for this compound, even though the risks were high. From a portfolio perspective, however, that clinical development plan made absolutely no sense. And, um, and yet there was a very strong push on the part of medical leadership of the team to move forward with this proposal and to bring it to the governance committee. Mm. So uh, that, that is a challenging situation. And I have been, I've had opportunities to, um, to try to impart a little bit more objectivity into teams and to, um, you know, to provide that reminder that, um, that we, can, we have to be very objective in the way we present our plans in the data that supports those plans, um, but also realize uh, quickly when it becomes apparent that relative to other portfolio opportunities, those plans really don't make sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's, I can clearly understand that bias. So, so if you work for, for often for many years on a compound, um, it's very easy that this compound becomes your baby. Yeah. And that you want to kind of protect it from everything that is bad for it. And you want to kind of, you know, uh, have it grow and, um, don't let any, any bow, anybody say anything worse about it, uh, or bad about it. Um, yes, but and it's really, a, it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a necessary tension. And uh, that what you just described, Alexander, is, is, is probably something that we should all as statisticians be very keenly aware of. Yeah. Because of the paradox is in drug development, you need that kind of tension. You need team members who are passionate advocates for their compounds because we know that in drug development, uh, often there are difficult choices. And sometimes um, even successful compounds go through periods in their development when the data really doesn't look very encouraging, and and yet there is a, a, a legit, legitimate reason to move on, and that requires the passion of teams. Yeah. But that has to be balanced with with passion that goes beyond uh, what is uh, justifiably rational, and that tipping point is not always entirely clear. Um, and so we talk of, of something that we call uh, dispassionate passion. And achieving that balance, though, is very difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I once heard a quote from someone, someone uh, more senior researchers that told me, "Never fall in love with your compound." <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, just because it makes you blind, and and uh, yeah, maybe too 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 passionate and uh, too too biased. Yeah, yeah. So, um, given all your learnings from now decision science, um, what would you encourage people to learn to be more impactful in their day-to-day -day job as a statistician? What would be kind of key recommendations that, that you would make? A few things uh, to that question. Uh, first and, and, and most fundamentally, and I think this is uh, this would go not only for statisticians but really across functions. It is so important and valuable to understand uh, understand our team members and our team leadership. Um, get to know your colleagues very well. Understand their motivations. Understand their needs. Um, and and. Um, in the context in which uh, in which you conduct your work, um, on in drug development is fundamentally a collaborative effort, and to the extent that we can uh, and we rely on each other and each other's expertise to drive a project forward. So, to the extent that we can understand each other better, and again, uh, be very cognizant of our of of, of our motivations, it can make uh, working together. Um, a lot more uh, efficient and uh, transparent and easier. And then, as I mentioned, there is this this broader context. Uh, really understand uh, the uh, understand that context. Um, uh, be aware of the external landscape priorities, uh, landscape uh, um, and the business priorities um, that your your assigned tasks uh, have. 
we don't always work on the highest priority um, uh, projects within a given organization and that's fine uh, one can have a very rewarding career uh, working at times on things that are very important and at other times things that are not so important but understanding the business priority can help guide uh, the specific efforts that are most impactful in any given situation so I think that's that's uh, that's very critical all of that you know the broader context the 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 business priority the external landscape can be boiled down to what I would just call this general sense of business acumen if we can conduct our particular assigned tasks within a context of really understanding uh, what the business is trying to achieve and how, how the business operates will make us most effective. Um, in that case, then we, um, we can look at our project and we don't have to wait for somebody to tell us what is the next step that we need to do. We understand what is that next step because we understand um, the, you know, the development path, the factors that impact the development path and, and, and what the business requires. Very good. That was a very, very nice, nice ending. Um, so thanks so much for, for this very, very nice interview. I think it highlighted um, that there is much more to a statistician to be effective than just knowing stats. And um, that I think the, the people side of things is a huge driver and um, yeah. Also, I think the, the learnings about kind of uh, how to present to a um, high-level committee uh, yes. is very, very important. And and knowing all these kind of different things in there, I'm 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 just thinking about it's kind of probably similar as if you pre present at a, at an advisory board or something like this that you know. What are the different people involved there? And that's right. You, you know that's right. Some of these, yeah. some of these principles are are very broadly applicable. You're right. Yeah. Uh, and then you know there are principles that really go beyond the dis discussion of partic a particular role within decision sciences or clinical statistics. As um, you know, a good uh, colleague of mine uh, and former supervisor likes to say, and I've used this expression so many times, I really ought to give him some royalties, that we become over time less a statistician and more uh, an excellent drug developer with a statistical toolkit. <laughs> and that difference may sound uh, subtle, but I think it's, it, it's very important. Yep, yep, completely agree to that. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you, Alexander. And uh, it was good to talk to you, as always. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your colleagues about it. And if you're interested in leadership, don't forget to leave your email address at theeffectivestatistician.com.